This is from John chapter 1, 43 to 51. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him about whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus, son of Joseph from Nazareth. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. When Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, he said of him, here is truly an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael asked him, where did you get to know me? Jesus answered, I saw you under the fig tree before Philip called you. Nathanael replied, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered, do you believe because I told you that I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the son of man. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Um, on the uh, second Sunday after Epiphany, um, I'd like to share with you uh, a few words from this about this passage and what it might be teaching us today. Uh, I think today one of the themes that we're going to talk about is uh, um, God's knowledge of us and then conversely, um, our knowledge of God. We'll really, we're really only going to scratch the surface. This is a fascinating verse, I think. Um, I read about it for the first time in a long time, and I found it to be utterly cryptic. <laughs> and it almost feels like an inside joke to me uh, because the conversation just makes so little sense um, on, at first glance. But hopefully we'll be able to make some sense out of it today. I think we worship a God who makes it very clear that, this, that he reveals himself to us. Um, if you remember a story about someone named Samuel from the Old Testament, Samuel is a prophet, the prophet that anoints King David. And Samuel, when Samuel is called in 1 Samuel 3, remember God calls upon him and then he, Samuel doesn't actually recognize who it is at first. And then um, the third time that he's called, uh, well, actually, no, after the second time, sorry, that he is called, uh, the priest Eli has to tell him that, uh, you know, this is how you answer when God calls you. And so we, we begin from a state where we don't really know how to talk to God. Now we begin from a state where we don't actually know God, but I, God does know us. And I think humans with us a very powerful desire to be known. Um, it is one thing I think to receive kindness from somebody, right? But it's quite another to have the understanding that you're known by another. I mean, think about what some, when you receive a very thoughtful gift from somebody uh, or when someone actually buys you clothes that look really good on you. It's, I think it's a pretty rare thing, um, at least from my experience. And, or when it only requires a few words to um, convey your thoughts to somebody. 
being known is, I think, a very strong desire that we as human beings have. I don't know when all of you were growing up, um, did y'all read a book called Tuck Everlasting? Uh, this is a book that is it's one of my favorite books, actually. Uh, I think I read it back in like second grade or something. But uh, when I was teaching English, I had an opportunity to teach this book again. And uh, it really struck me in a lot of different ways, uh, in ways that you know I didn't remember when I was a child. Um, but for those of you who aren't familiar or have probably forgotten the story, Talk Everlasting is about a family of people who... And we don't really know where this is sometime maybe in the 19th century in the in what seems to be somewhere in the south but we're not really sure um but there is a family called the tuck family um they've they drank water from a spring one day and then they found that they be, they were immortal uh that they could not die and they just keep on living and they also do not grow um they completely stop aging at the point where they drink that water from the spring um, they run into a girl, a 10-year-old girl who's the protagonist named Winnie. And so you, and she is sort of this only person who is privy to this knowledge that this family um, is, you know, has found the secret to eternal life, actually. And that they are, um, she's the only one that has, that sort of sees them in, in all of their sort of immortality and all the unhappiness that they actually carry in that state. And so by the end, um, the youngest son of this family, uh, whose name is, what was his name? Uh, Jesse. Uh, he, he, gives, he gives to this girl, Winnie, um, a bottle of that water from the spring as sort of a parting gift and tells her that uh, to drink that in seven years time so that when she's 17, which is the age that he, that he has stopped aging at, um, they could get married. <laughs> Which I thought was—I don't know—it's it's kind of a strange, strange proposal, if you ask me. But um, it's—I think it just really sort of illustrates very well this desire to be known by somebody, um, to have somebody in your life who actually understands who you are, and uh, and conversely, the loneliness of having to wander in the world and not be known by uh, others. Now. From the song that we read earlier, um, we know that God, is, God as our creator has very deep and intimate knowledge of each one of us. Um, the, beginning of the psalm begins with, oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. And later on we read, it was you who formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. And so we begin with this idea that God knows us and that because god knows us god reveals himself to us and so that's what i think is important to keep in mind as we get into this verse today because admittedly it is a bit strange and i i'm just no i just think it's great <laughs> i think jesus is really weird i think the bible is really weird and uh I know this verse I thought was stranger than many of the others <laughs> that I've read recently. Now, because think about it for one second. Um, you know, first of all, Nathaniel has this really sort of audacious statement about, you know, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Like, what do you know? 
but um, apparently he knows something, uh, perhaps, that uh, maybe it's because Nazareth isn't really part of the Messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. It's hard to say, but, um, but then Philip invites him to come and see. And then Jesus' first Jesus's first statement to Nathaniel is, "Here is um, an Israel. Here is truly an Israelite in whom there is no deceit," which is baffling to me. I don't know where on earth that came from. Um, and I'm going to come back to that statement. And I'm going to just jump ahead to Nathaniel's response to that, which is, "Lord, where did you come to know me?" Now, what? What is in this response? Um, now notice, like one of the themes in the Gospel of John is this idea that, that Jesus has come so that we may come to know God. So knowledge is a very important keyword here. Now, if you remember, um, let's think for a second about who else is known to Jesus in the Bible. In an, in an unexpected way, the first um, the first person that comes to my mind is actually the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman uh, in John 4. This woman, um, after Jesus tells her about, you know, her relationships with other men, this woman goes back to her town and tells everybody else, you know, here's a man who told me everything I have ever done. So we get the sense that Jesus somehow knows us. And I think that's part of at least what's going on here as well. Now, just as sort of a side note, uh, Nathaniel's um, exchange with Jesus and the and Jesus' exchange with the woman at the well both occur before a sign. They both occur before Jesus does some kind of miraculous sign that points to who he is. And Nathaniel's exchange precedes the first sign, which is the wedding, the, the wedding at Cana, turning the water into wine. Uh, the woman at the well precedes the second sign, um, which is the healing of an official's son. Now, Jesus, now I wonder what it is that Jesus actually knows about Nathaniel, because Jesus says, here's truly an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. I mean, immediately, as those of us who are used to reading um, novels or stories or watching movies that more or less explain to us some part of the psychology or the thinking of the characters, this is a little bit baffling because, um, I mean, of course, we can surmise that Jesus, uh, as God, as God incarnate, knows something that we don't. I mean, that makes sense, I think. but. There's, but this sort of storytelling is just so abrupt. I mean, I mean, what uh, we don't know anything about Nathaniel. I mean, to be totally honest, Nathaniel is kind of one of those nobodies that are named in the, the Gospel of John, to the point where Nathaniel's not even really even present in the other Gospels. I mean, there are uh, some people say that he's given by a different name in the in the Synoptic Gospels, but um, point being. Um, this figure uh, who's a disciple of Jesus named Nathaniel is really only present in the Gospel of John. And so we know nothing about him. And this, 
Um, I mean, we can maybe we can maybe one idea is that you know this is a response to Nathaniel's bluntness in verse forty-six. Nathaniel saying, you know, what what is what good comes out of Nazareth? Maybe it says something about his knowledge of scripture. Um, I'm not really sure about all that. Uh, I know those. I mean, those are those are possible, but it seems to me that the point is more in the a more oblique reference here to a psalm. On there's a very vague reference here to Psalm 32, and that psalm goes something like this: "Happy are those whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Happy are those to whom the Lord imputes no iniquity." And in whose spirit there is no deceit. This psalm has to do with somebody coming to the Lord, coming to God, and confessing their own transgressions, their own sins, and being and God turning to them and forgiving them. And so a part of me wonders, is this sort of John's version of that story? Do you remember when um, some people come to Jesus and they sort of break the roof and lower their friend in. And Jesus says to him, son, your sins are forgiven. That's also that's a really sort of strange scene, right? It's like non secular. <laughs> like, whoa, what does that have anything to do with what just happened? But um, a part of me wonders whether, this, whether Jesus' comment about uh, Nathaniel being a truly an Israelite has something to do with... Jesus' labeling of him as someone who is has been forgiven of his sins. Now, so I guess like it doesn't really matter wh- why Nathaniel is addressed in this way. It, it maybe it just matters that Jesus says this about him at all. And now I feel like it gets a little bit worse after this because. Then after Nathaniel's response, Jesus then tells him, you know, how, so, so Nathaniel reasonably asks, how do you know me? You know, where do you know me from? And which seems to acknowledge something about, you know, maybe the veracity or something about the significance, at least, of what Jesus is saying about Nathaniel. And Jesus' response is, again, quite odd. He says, I saw you under the fig tree before Philip called you. Now, what is this all about? Now, there's, now, if you read commentaries about John, you'll see some speculation about what Nathaniel must have been doing under that fig tree. Was he teaching in scripture? Was he, I, I don't know, doing this or that? And I think the honest answer is that we just don't know because, well, John doesn't tell us. And the point seems to be in some kind of reference to um, the scriptures, the Old Testament. Because whenever, when we talk about someone sitting under a fig tree, uh, there are three references uh, in which that's, that kind of takes a prominent place in the Old Testament. First of all, in the book of Kings, we see this reference of each man sitting under their own vine and their own fig tree referring to the peace during the reign of King Solomon, who is sort of this archetypal wise king, um, incidentally also sort of an archetypal unwise king who 
ultimately leads Israel into destruction, but that's another story. Another reference I think that's informative is um, in the book of Zechariah. Now, Zechariah has a vision um, of who's the man who's the high priest at the time, a man named Joshua, and these other Levitical priests. And then, and then he sees, and then God speaks to him saying that God is going to send his quote-unquote branch. Um, and this branch is understood in the book of Zechariah to be a king who is in the line of David. And this king is also, interestingly enough, said to be the someone who is going to build the temple of God. Now, isn't that strange? The temple of God, the re, someone who's going to, Zechariah is uh, considered to be post-exilic or, uh, yeah, post-exilic literature, something that comes, um, something that was written after Israel's, you know, their home and their temple and all the symbols of their worship were destroyed by the Babylonians. And so there is the sense in which there is going to be this king who is going to rebuild the temple. And again, every man is going to sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree. And now when we think about that, um, Nathaniel's next response seems to make a little bit more sense. Nathaniel immediately responds, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Remember, we just the, all the things we just talked about, Solomon, the coming of a new king in the line of David, who's going to rebuild the temple. I don't, I don't think this necessarily points to how smart Nathaniel is or how faithful he is or how perceptive he is. I mean, we could, but I think this conversation is just laid out for our own instruction about who Jesus is. Now, Jesus apparently, however, in the, in the flow of this conversation, believes that Nathaniel doesn't quite get it yet. There's one more step that um, Nathaniel or whoever identifies with Nathaniel needs to understand because he tells him, you will see greater things than these. And what greater things will he see? The heavens opened. And the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with this image. This is a very interesting rereading of the episode of Jacob's Ladder in Genesis 28. Now, Jacob, Jacob sees this sort of celestial ladder upon which angels are descending and ascending. But the, I guess the interesting difference here is that there is no ladder. And the implication being that Jesus himself has become the mediating presence between the heavens and the earth. Jesus, in, in the Gospel of John, one of the most important revelations that are given to us is that Jesus himself is now the new temple. We read in John 2, um, when, Jesus, um, when Jesus really... You know, he shows uh, some the greatest anger that he ever shows in the Gospels and drives out the merchants and the people selling, um, selling sac sacrificial animals and, uh, in the temple, on the temple grounds. We're told that you know, Jesus, is, and Jesus says, 
um, destroy this temple and I will build it back up in three days. But this temple isn't literally that temple that was there in Jerusalem. But we're told that he was speaking of the temple of his body. The implication seems to be that the place of worship for the true worshipers of God is now no longer confined to a specific location. Now, maybe we, when we look at the Old Testament, we're given a sense that maybe it never was. There's a very good case for that, I think. But nevertheless, we're reminded here that where Jesus goes, God's presence will be also. And by extension, when we read then into the discourses of the Apostle Paul, we know that where the church is, God's presence is there also. Now, we're told that Jesus knows us. We're given a sense that Jesus somehow knows each individual in their particular place throughout the Gospel of John. But we're told at the very beginning of this Gospel, in John 1.10, that the world did not know him. And so we, go, we sort of go back to where we started. God knows us, and yet we do not know God. And so God knows to reveal himself to us. Jesus is teaching us, I think, through these kinds of passages so that we can know God. We may know the Father, the one and only God, and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent, which is from John 17. And then Jesus reveals to us that he himself is the temple. He himself is the body where God's presence can be felt in the dwelling place of God's spirit. Now, God knows what is in people, we're told. And we are not born knowing God, but God invites us through the language of John to come and see. Now, uh, this is probably my, I think it's only my second time preaching on John. But um, as, on a personal note, I just want to say that God, John is one of the most challenging and also my favorite gospel. Um, John has always been uh, a gospel that has sustained me through some of the difficulties of my own life. Now, when I used to live in Tokyo, um, and when I was really just starting to learn more and more about um, develop a, a Christian identity, uh, I, I went through a few years, which were probably some of the most profoundly unhappy years of my life uh, when I used to work in the animation industry. And every morning, um, I would get on these jam-packed trains. I would, this is not a special day. <laughs> this is every day in Tokyo. Um, this is not just the busiest station, although this is one of them. Um, this is pretty much every station in Tokyo. And I like this photograph. I don't know who took it. Um, I'm just kind of appropriating it. But I, I like this photo just because it, I think it reveals very well sort of the blankness of the expressions of people's faces. And you will definitely notice this if you ever visit Tokyo. And the morning, the morning rush hour is, um, is very, is not, is not a great experience. Uh, you're, they're literally train, they're literally train staff who pack you into these trains like animals or something. Um, pragmatically, that's what you have to do to get to work. But 
there were, there were times when I really questioned to what end I was doing this. Um, every year, I think about somewhere in the avenue of 10,000 people commit suicide in Japan. And a lot of times that suicide occurs uh, on the train tracks. And people who have attempted suicide or who have um, thought about it will often say that they feel so, they just, there are just times when they feel like they gravitate towards these strange tracks. Like they're just kind of sucked in almost. And all it takes is to just sort of give in to that impulse and then for everything to end. But one of the words, the, the verse that always sustained me um, throughout my time in Japan and throughout um, some of the more difficult years of my life was from John 8. Jesus tells his disciples, if you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. Because in this world, I think we are bound by our commitments or by, by our own weaknesses and the limitations we have both in body and in mind. Our own loves and our passions, I think, bind us. Um, our inclinations and our feelings, you know, how we feel at a certain time about what we're doing, how we feel about somebody at a certain point in time. But amidst all this, all this stuff that vies for our attention and for the space in our mind and sort of the, uh, the capacity of our hearts, I think we are reminded that to know the truth the one way to the Father frees us from all of these things. And this, for this reason, this, this verse always brought me peace of mind because it told me that there is such a thing as truth. And if nothing else, the truth was worth living for. In Isaiah, we find the words, we find the call, let us go up to the Lord's mountain, to the temple of the God of Jacob, so he can teach us his ways and we can follow his standards. We live in a time when I think where there's a lot on our minds. Um, I, I personally um, am very concerned about where this, the direction of this country, as I'm sure many of us are. We live in a nation that is very divided and we live in an age where things that were certain before have suddenly become very uncertain. And, some, and we've gotten to a point where some of those changes that we've experienced look like they're around to stay for longer periods of time. What kind of world will we be living in a year, five years, 10 years from now? It's difficult to say, and it can, all, it can be difficult to imagine how, we, how do we conceive ourselves living Christianly and faithful lives in this environment. And so my prayer for us today is, for the Lord indeed to teach us, for, for him to teach us how to live and love in a divided nation. May he teach us to repent of our own sins and to recall them so that we may do so. And may he teach us to walk just as Jesus walked. Please pray with me, friends. Heavenly Father, uh, we come to you, hopefully in a heart of humility, Lord, we, there's much that we do not know about this world. And there is much we do not know about you, Lord. 
and the ways that you have created us. But we know that you have, we know in fear that you have created us wonderfully and that we have, uh, there is a mystery to, there's a mystery and a beauty to the way in which you have created us and you have created all of creation. Lord, as we remember these things, we pray that simultaneously that you teach us to follow you, to remind us, keep showing us, keep revealing to us who you are and who you showed yourself to be in Jesus Christ so that we may better follow his commandment to love one another as he loved us. Lord, please place it in our hearts to to reach out to you, to call upon you to lay all of our troubles at your feet, to lay all of the death and all of the pain that we have, that we see and have and experience in this world at your feet, because at your hands, Lord, and your hands alone, you take these things and make life out of them. There's much that is mysterious to us. And I think this verse is a reminder that Lord, your ways are, can be very mysterious. But we thank you that you have nevertheless given us knowledge of who you are. May we show ourselves to be those who do truly have that knowledge by following in the ways that Jesus showed us, by following the commandment to love one another and to love you. Bear with us in these things. May we, and we pray for your mercy. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Thank you.